welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. With just one month to go until the midterm elections, Republicans and Democrats are looking to capitalize on Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation on November 6th. Speaking with Fox News Sunday yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell defended his party's handling of the nomination. We didn't attack the nominee. We didn't go on a search and destroy mission. I agree that with uh, Chuck Schumer, this has been a low point in the Senate. I have a different view about who caused the low point. And joining us now is Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg News, live in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington. Anna, I keep hearing the Republicans are energized, and then I keep hearing the Democrats are energized. Does anybody have the edge out of this? Well, both sides are energized. The difference is the Democrats were already energized. So if you look at enthusiasm from the Republican and Democratic base, Democrats were already fired up. They've been fired up since 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. So the Republican base really has more to gain in response to this really messy confirmation fight. Anna, looking at the midterms and the Senate seats in the midterms, which senators are more at risk because of the Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation. Well, you have the Democratic senators in the states that Trump won, like Heidi Heidkamp, who voted against Kavanaugh's confirmation. You see Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who voted in, voted in favor of Kavanaugh's confirmation exactly for that fear. He comes from a very conservative state that pretty much wanted Kavanaugh confirmed. Another interesting Senate race to watch is in Tennessee, where Phil Bretson, the uh, the Democrat said that he would have voted for Kavanaugh had he been in the Senate. He's running against Republican Marsha Blackburn, who has not really managed to create the enthusiasm among GOP voters in the GOP establishment in in the state of Tennessee. Joe Manchin, did he have everything to lose, but really nothing to gain in West Virginia by voting the way he did? Well, Joe Manchin is a Democrat, but he's very popular in West Virginia, and he was in a very strong position, maybe even surprisingly so for a Democrat this year in West Virginia. It was a tough situation for him. If he voted against Kavanaugh's confirmation, he was going to face a lot of backlash from conservatives in his state. But voting for Kavanaugh's confirmation, he's faced some pushback from Democrats in his state who said, listen, we want a Democrat in the Senate to vote the way the Democrats vote. So there really was no easy thing for him to do. And it was interesting that he waited until after Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, had said that she would vote in favor of Kavanaugh's confirmation. So we knew that he was already going to be confirmed and it was kind of a little bit of a less of a consequence vote for for Joe Manchin, at least to not be the deciding vote. What about Heidi Heidkamp? What's happening with her race now? I think she probably wanted to vote against Kavanaugh initially, but she was kind of making noises that she was considering voting in his favor. But these allegations from Dr. Blasey Ford made it a bit easier for her to vote against Kavanaugh's confirmation. So one of the outcomes that we see from the allegations that surfaced last month is that some of the Democrats in conservative states who would have voted for Kavanaugh's confirmation felt like it was a little easier for them not to. There was a Washington Post Char School poll of 69 battleground districts released today, and it showed that 50% of those surveyed said they preferred Democratic candidates compared to 46% 
who backed Republicans. That sounds to me like a sign of potential trouble for the GOP. Yeah, I mean, the GOP was already facing headwinds in this midterm. So the best they could hope for from the fallout from this Kavanaugh fight is that they would close some of the gap that they were already facing. And one thing I think you'll see from Americans is that a lot of people might want divided government, in which case they could vote for a Democrat for the House and a Republican for the Senate as kind of a way to check uh, the president and the Trump White House and not give Republicans full control of government as they've had for the past two years. So, Heidi, what do you see President Trump doing in the various locations he's going to be? Sorry, Anna, how, what do you see President Trump doing in the locations that he's going to be campaigning in in the next month? Well, Trump is, as we know, kind of a no-holds-barred kind of guy. So I think it's going to be very strategic where... Uh, Republicans choose to send the president where he chooses to go. He's only going to go to those states or those districts where he can really let loose and say, you know, raw team, we're getting all these conservative wins, we're just winning, 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 fight the Democrats. And he's going to go to states where that is well received. You'll probably see less of President Trump and less of other White House officials in the really close swing districts where a, a moderate Republican has a better chance of winning. Listen, have minute left here. Hasn't this sort of uh, woken people up on both sides of the aisle? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Like I said before, Democrats were already energized. So polls show that Republicans have gained in uh, the gap of the enthusiasm gap that they had compared to Democrats at the beginning of the month. So we'll see, you know, it all comes down to turnout like in every other midterm race. All right, Anna, thanks so much for being here. That's Bloomberg News congressional reporter Anna Edgerton. On Saturday, the long, nasty fight finally all came to an end. The Senate voted 50-48 to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to become an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. To call the process contentious would be a gross understatement. There were charges of sexual assault, drunken partying, a sense of entitlement, and more. As Maine Republican Susan Collins officially lifted all those clouds hanging over the nomination in an impassioned speech on the Senate floor on Friday, she lamented the divisive process. Our Supreme Court confirmation process has been in steady decline for more than 30 years. One can only hope that the Kavanaugh nomination is where the process has finally hit rock bottom. Well, has it? We are joined now by Neil Kinkoff, professor at Georgia State University School of Law. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Senator Collins may have ended the questions about his confirmation, but she, she didn't end the questions about his partisanship, his lack of judicial temperament, uh, as seen by some. How do those things follow Kavanaugh into the courtroom? Well, I think it'll, those will follow him into the courtroom when it comes to really contentious issues that the court decides. So primarily I'm thinking of um, the various questions that are inevitable to arise out of the Mueller investigation. Um, It's hard to imagine how he could look credible if he votes um, in a way that favors the president. Neil, let's talk just a little bit about the justices. And the justices are coming behind him and they're saying all the right things. But we know that former 
Justice John Paul Stevens was not of the same mind. He said that he was not fit to serve on the Supreme Court. Do you believe that some of the justices might feel that way as well, but are just papering it over because they have to work with this man for the rest of their careers? Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. Um, They have to work with him for the rest of their careers. They form coalitions, so they're going to want to appeal to him. Um, And also, the the institution itself is at stake, and they are all very deeply invested in it. So they want to make the court look um, nonpartisan, look like a viable um, institution that we should all put our faith in. So that's in every justice's interest. So what can they do at this point to make it seem as if the court is not partisan? Does it depend on the kind of cases they take? Might they take cases that are narrower and don't relate as much to social issues for a while? I I think that's absolutely right. I think they're going to try to bore us to death, um, (laughs) put us to sleep, and hope that when we wake up, we will have largely forgotten about all of the late unpleasantness. We had uh, Obama-era Attorney General Eric Holder reacting to uh, the confirmation. Uh, He actually questioned the legitimacy of the court. Could that be a a serious problem down the road? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's not a new thing that the court's legitimacy would be called into question. Throughout history, that's happened with some frequency. Um, in the wake of Bush versus Gore, there were some questions about it. I think certainly that was lurking um, beneath all of the litigation around Obamacare. And Chief Justice Roberts was especially concerned that the court not look like it was acting in a partisan fashion to undo the signature program of a Democratic president with only Republican votes. So Chief Justice Roberts has been very attuned to this um, throughout his time on the court. And I think, you know, this is as this is the biggest challenge in that respect that he's going to face. So does he or or the rest of the court have to do anything actively to regain the nation's trust, so to speak? I think he's going to have to work hard to try to build coalitions that aren't just five to four partisan decisions. He's going to have to try to work across the the judicial aisle um, and try to bring on Justices Breyer or Kagan or Justice Ginsburg um, where they can and where they can't, I think he's going to have to be very careful to decide cases in a narrower way if he really wants to preserve the, the court's political capital. Justice Stevens, in his remarks, talked a little bit about or referred to recusal from certain cases, that uh, implying that there might be certain cases that Kavanaugh would have to recuse himself from. Now, you know, and I know what the recusal process is like on the Supreme Court. No one knows why they're recusing, and there's no, there are no guidelines for them. So how likely is that, that he'll recuse himself? Well, I think it's really unlikely. Um, He's not in any formal position of conflict with respect to cases coming out of the Trump administration. And in fact, no justice has ever recused themselves just because the case involves the president who nominated them. Um, There's a long tradition of justices ruling on those cases, and in many instances, ruling against the president who appointed them. Um, So I I just... I, I. I don't think he's going to be recusing himself, and I can't imagine himself any more than did Justice Thomas 
recusing himself in cases that involve claims of um, gender discrimination or sex harassment. Does what many see as, as the breakdown of the process this time around uh, tell us anything, perhaps, about the timing of future confirmations? Uh, should the Senate steer clear of, of midterm election years, for example? Well, if they do that, then that puts half of the years off the table. Um, I, I, I don't think they will. Um, I, I think when these when these um, when these vacancies come up, the Senate is the presidents are going to nominate, and the Senate will confirm. Where that might come into play is justices themselves when they decide to retire, trying to time it so that they avoid election years. So, Neil, but as we saw with but as we saw with with Merrick Garland's um, vacancy, for example, those those can be held. So um, there there are no guarantees. Neil, what do you see? There has been talk about. Uh, having an impeachment possible of Judge Kavanaugh if Democrats retake the House. That's been tried in the past, but has never been successful with a Senate vote. What are the, what's the likelihood that it might be tried again? It might be tried. It's completely futile. The likelihood of it succeeding is zero. Right? You need a two-thirds vote in the Senate. But and Abe Fortas did, did remove himself from the court after a talk of impeachment. Well, and also after his nomination to be Chief Justice had been rejected, right? So it, it was pretty clear that his continuing on the court was not tenable. And and in that case, what, what was involved were, were real credible allegations of financial and other sorts of improprieties. Um, Judge Kavanaugh is not accepting that he's done anything wrong. And so I, 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 I just can't imagine the, the parallel applying to him. It is going to be very interesting watching this all play out. Our thanks to Neil Kinkoff, professor at Georgia State University School of Law. President Trump is celebrating the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Speaking at a rally in Kansas on Saturday, Trump called Kavanaugh an outstanding man. We have a great new Supreme Court justice, and he's going to be there for many years. We are very, very proud of him and what he and his family had to endure. Looking into the future now, we have Jonathan Adler, professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation on the line with us now. Obviously, we won't actually know this until we see Brett Kavanaugh at work on the U.S. Supreme Court. But how influential could he be in shaping the high court far into the future? Well, I think he will be influential, at least in those areas where he has shown a great degree of expertise. Uh, He spent 12 years on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which deals with a lot of the most significant cases involving federal regulation. And throughout his time on that court, we've seen him have an influence on the Supreme Court in terms of what cases the Supreme Court takes and how the Supreme Court evaluates those sorts of issues. And so my view is that if he had that sort of influence on the Supreme Court before he reached reached that court, uh, we should expect uh, him to be even more influential now that he's not down the street, but actually across the conference table. Some breaking news. Google says they're shutting down Google Plus for consumers on its blog. Google shares are down 2% on the news that it's shutting down Google Plus for consumers. Jonathan, 
though he was very influential in the cases that came to the court, might the court step back a little bit from taking cases that are going to end up likely in a 5-4 split for a while in order to try to repair the damage that's been done to its image? Well, I think certainly the Chief Justice, uh, as we know, likes to keep the court out of high-profile political disputes when he can. Uh, I think also whenever you have a new justice, uh, it takes some time before the justices get a good sense of uh, how the new justice is going to evaluate cases. And, And I think that always tends to make the court a little more reluctant to uh, take new cases. And I, I think the, the political fight over Kavanaugh's nomination and the wounds that, that it created uh, will only magnify that normal tendency to move a little slowly when you have uh, a changes on, in the court's personnel. We were speaking earlier in the program uh, about uh, President Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder uh, questioning the legitimacy of the court, given all that's happened leading up to this. Does the court need to uh, tread lightly to regain uh, the country's trust? Well, I think if the court just sticks to what it normally does, uh, that over time, uh, you know, people will, will realize that the court is going to continue to decide the sorts of cases it has always decided. Most of what the court does is not the sort of thing that makes the front page of the New York Times. Most of what it does is provide clarity and consistency to various aspects of federal law about rules that, that relate to the regulation of business, the handling of various types of litigation, and so on. And uh, that that sort of work is going to continue, and I think will will reassure folks that the court is still uh, very much uh, the type of court that we've, we've come to know. Clarence Thomas said in his memoirs that he used to wear a bulletproof vest, and those days are behind him. But Brett Kavanaugh, in his confirmation, was even more contentious, and he went outside the typical role of a Supreme Court nominee in several ways with the Fox TV interview, the Wall Street Journal editorial. So might it be more difficult for him to overcome any preconceptions the public has? Well, it's certainly understandable that that some portion of the public is going to be skeptical of Justice Kavanaugh for some time, and he uh, certainly should be aware of that. And in terms of thinking about public appearances and the like, what sorts of speeches he gives, uh, I think it would make sense for him to be aware that, that at least for a time he's going to remain a divisive figure, I would think, and certainly hope. Uh, that he at some point in the near future takes an opportunity to acknowledge and and reflect on uh, the nomination process and acknowledge his own part, particularly at that one hearing, in in feeding the, the rancor and the partisanship of this process. Can you give us a little color on what it's likely to be like the first time that uh, Kavanaugh takes his place uh, in the Supreme Court? Well, he'll be, he, he will be on the bench tomorrow, uh, I believe, when the court uh, hears oral argument. And, and um, you know, I think you know, he will be at the end because the, the justices sit in order of seniority with the chief at, at, in the middle and then alternating on either side. So he will be at, a, at the far end of the court. Um, uh, I don't think the justices are going to treat him any differently. Um, four of the justices, in addition to the chief, uh, were at his swearing-in on, on Saturday, including Justices Kagan and Ginsburg. Um, but uh, I do think there will be quite a bit of attention the first time he asks a question. Uh, I think a lot of us are wondering whether he will be as aggressive uh, at oral argument as Justice Gorsuch was during his first term. 
And um, coming up is going to be the court considering overturning the separate sovereigns doctrine. Where might his his uh, inclinations lie in that kind of a case? I think that that's a particularly hard case to judge for, for a bunch of reasons, one of which is um, while in the D.C. Circuit he dealt a lot with questions of federal regulation, he didn't deal nearly so much with either questions of criminal law or with issues of federalism. Because D.C. is not a state, the sort of federalism concerns that come up, for example, in this dual sovereignty case relating to, to double jeopardy, uh, didn't really emerge. So on some of those sorts of issues, I think we really have a hard time and can only speculate about how he might approach them. Would you say the uh, cases coming up on sexual orientation and gender identity would be some of the most closely watched just ahead? Um, well, certainly when the, when the court starts to take some of those cases, I think those would be very closely watched. There are some cases relating to affirmative action, relating to abortion, that are working their way up in the lower courts. Um, there are some very important regulatory cases relating to uh, climate change regulation or to uh, the FCC's regulation that, that also would be worth watching if they make the court. Our thanks to Jonathan Adler, professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.